Hey, good morning. If you're standing in the back, there are seats up in this region right here, right in the front, of course. But you're welcome to come find whatever seats you want to try to find. Yes, I was down in Mexico. Um, we support an orphanage down in Carmen Cerdon. It's just 50 minutes south of San Diego. And we have a school going on right now for young adults. Uh, it's called Cultivate. So I went down and I taught them. Unbelievable group of men and women, just amazing. Um, if you have a young person in life that maybe is graduating from school or kind of looking for something to do, we'll do another one of these schools. It's epic. I was there when I was young, younger, uh, for about four months. And that was a real important time in my personal walk with Jesus, just solidified, put roots down. Uh, you're there practically serving. Like the orphans there aren't just, uh, they're not adoptable. They're extremely handicapped. Some of them require 20-hour care. They get about four hours sleep, and then it's, you've got to brush their teeth and clothe them and change their diaper and bathe them and feed them. And you're just, it's, it's real hands-on. So you're learning like to serve like Jesus. Brilliant, brilliant spot. And every time I go there, it's like, I don't know how to explain it other than whatever burden I have just feels like it's gone. Whatever I'm worried about, whatever seems big, everything gets put in perspective, and it's an amazing time down there. So if you get a chance, uh, we'll try to send some trips down there. They're very protective, though, of that area. Like, it's not Interstate 5, because it's there for the orphans. That's why that place exists. So there's always a real kind of, no, we're not going to have a bunch of groups coming in all the time, because it kind of makes uh, a little bit of the sanctuariness of the place go away. But we'll try to send some trips. But glad to be back. Super excited. Jesus, um, we pray for Cultivate right now. Some young men and young women who decided to take their own money and a lot of time and really sit, listen, learn, serve in ways that will change their lives. I pray your blessing upon them. What's been planted, may it be watered, and would you give an increase? I pray for the staff down there. Would you repay them good measure, pressed down, running over? I pray, Lord, for the orphans. I pray that somehow, Lord, through their souls, through their spirits, I pray that they would know this day what a good work they are doing. How many lives have been touched, transformed, and changed because of who they are. How they represent you. May they be blessed. I pray a protection over those 18 acres of land. May it continue to be a place where your spirit, where your shalom abides. I pray for us. Would you speak? May we listen. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter four. I want to begin by this picture right here. What is that? It's a Tesla that they'll give you a really good deal on right now. You want to own a Tesla right here. What happened to it? It started on fire. If you know Teslas, when they start on fire, a normal car fire takes about 400, 500 gallons of water. A Tesla, 6,000 gallons of water. 
because the batteries start and they don't go out. So when they actually tow them somewhere, they dig a hole and they actually put them in water because they'll just spark again and start on fire again. Like they're massive, massive fires. I say that because in Nehemiah chapter four, we're in a four alarm fire. And Nehemiah now is gonna show us the fire though this time, it's lit by tongues of fire, gossip and slander and bullying. And what Nehemiah is gonna show us is how to be a good firefighter. When it comes to this new kind of battle that all of us have, how do you and I battle that well when it comes to gossip and slander and the lies of the enemy that are always launched in our direction? How do we fight back? So check it out, Nehemiah chapter four, verse one. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, if you're new, Nehemiah in chapter one hears that his beloved city, Jerusalem, the wall was broken down, the gates were burned, the people were in great distress, and it moves him to pray for four and a half months. Then he gets an opportunity because he's in the king's court. The king asks him, what's wrong with you? He says, how can I be happy when the city of my forefathers is broken down? The king says, what do you need? He says, I need a couple million dollars and about 12 years off. And the king says, okay, fine, done, right? Just a miracle happens. So Nehemiah has come and they're starting to rebuild the wall. Now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, and of the army of Samaria. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Here's the sparks that start the fire. It's mocking, it's hazing, it's jeering. And you've got these two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. And we saw them already in Nehemiah. It was chapter two, verse 10, that when Nehemiah shows up and starts to say, hey, I wanna rebuild this wall. I wanna put gates on the city. These two guys are upset that someone would seek the well-being of the people in Jerusalem. That we'll see these two guys make money off other people's misery. Their business was to keep people down and subjugated so they didn't want him to rebuild the city because it would be bad for their business. There are a couple of bullies, right? Sambalat is the leader and Tobiah is like his wingman. You know who they remind me of? They remind me of these two guys right here. Yeah, you know this one? Scut Farkas. What a name, huh? And Grover Dill. That's what they are. A couple of bullies jeering and mocking, right? A fox goes up there and walks on the wall. He'll knock it over. Yeah, high-fiving each other, right? 
You got a perfumer who's building a wall. What's he pressing all or rose petals and making essential oils and mixing it in the mortar? I mean, come on. This is ridiculous. Mocking and jeering. Whenever you decide that you want to help God's people, that you want to rebuild, that you're going to equip, that you want to enable, that you want to defend, know this, you'll be attacked. We do have an enemy. He will attack. The only way you're not going to be mocked or jeered or made fun of is if you do nothing, be nothing, and say nothing. Just go to your house and numb yourself with Netflix. Right? So a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I put out a video on homelessness. And it was because a guy had called me who was in the government. And he's like, I'm trying to, I'm a believer. And I'm trying to figure out what is a reasoned biblical response to this problem that we have in homelessness. And so I said, no problem. And I made a video of it. And he was like, I've been looking around at all these churches and no one is foolish enough to talk about it. I said, I'll be the fool, no problem. <laughs> no, I don't care, right? Man, you wouldn't believe what I've been called. My favorite though is this. It's the shutdown argument now. Do you have a PhD in homelessness, Matt? No, I don't. It's like now you're not allowed to have an opinion unless you have a PhD in being indoctrinated and drinking their Kool-Aid. If you haven't done that, we don't want your opinion. Do you know they did the same thing to Jesus? It's Mark chapter six. Jesus's ministry is exploding growing huge. And a group of people are like, who's this Jesus guy? We know who he is. He's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. What were they saying? Jesus doesn't have a PhD from Harvard. He can't be saying these things. He doesn't have a doctorate of divinity. Oh, he's getting a little big for his britches. He should learn his place, right? That's what they were saying to Jesus. To be honest with you, I think if you want the truth, ask a carpenter. They'll tell you the truth. That every study has shown this, the more educated you become, the less likely you are to buck the system because you have too much invested in it. I've got eight years invested in this. I got 10 years invested in this. I'm just gonna go with the flow, keep my head down. That's what happens. If you really want the truth, Ask a carpenter, ask an electrician, ask a drywaller, a plumber, a framer. You know why? I got plenty of work, I'll tell you the truth. You can fire me from this job. I get people knocking down the door for more. They'll tell you the truth, right? So mocked and jeered, expect it. And what were they trying to do? What's the goal of Sambalat and Tobiah? Stop God's work. Always remember that. That's their goal. We want the gates burned down and we want the walls broken down. We want evil to be able to get in and to steal and to kill and to destroy. The opposition is always to stop God's work. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to get to church on Sunday morning, right? Like, why is it such a battle? It feels like we're climbing up Mount Everest. Why is it that on your way to church on Sunday, you and your spouse fight like rock stars. Why is that? Right? And then you come through the doors and someone says, hey, how are you guys doing today? Awesome. Praise God. 
So good, right? We all do it. Why is it such a battle? Because the enemy does not want God's good work to happen in your life. Why is it such a battle to get your kids on Wednesday night or Thursday night? Why is it such a battle? Because the enemy is always trying to stop the good work. If you're going to rebuild, there will be a battle. It's just that simple. So get prepared for it. If you're gonna rebuild, then it's gonna be a battle. People will say, why are you wasting your life on that kind of stuff? Why are you spending all your money on that? Why are you giving to that? There's gonna be a battle. What, you wanna take on foster kids? Are you kidding? You can't take care of your own biological kids, right? There'll be a battle. What, you wanna teach the Bible? Are you kidding? You can't even find the book of Nehemiah. Who do you think you are? There's always going to be a Bible, a battle. When you're rebuilding, expect a battle. So how do you respond? Do you get on Facebook, right? Do you, do you lash back at them? Hey, I know he's a perfumer, but man, he can mix some mean mortar. Best hod carry this side of the Euphrates. Is that what you do? Look what Nehemiah does, verse four. Hear, O our God. What is Nehemiah's instinctive response to the enemy? Number one is prayer. I said, this is a mark of Nehemiah. Number one, prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Listen to this prayer. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I just say it's like this. It's God and then go. God and then go. Human nature wants to yell back at the Sambalats and Tobias. We wanna get engaged in an argument Nehemiah doesn't. He instantly prays. And his prayer is this. Take the evil that they want to do and bring it back on their own heads. Kind of a brutal prayer. Why does Nehemiah pray this way? Because he knows the Bible. That over and over what you see in the Bible is this. God uses evil to judge evil. When Israel gets evil and they start to sacrifice their own children on the arms of Moloch, God calls up the most evil empire called Babylon to come and visit evil on Israel. That God very often uses evil to judge evil. And that's what Nehemiah is praying. Take the evil that they want to do to us and do it to them. Let them be captives. Why would he say that? Because for 150 plus years, the people working on the wall had been captive to Babylon. Let them see how it feels. Then they'll understand why we're building this wall, right? So that's what he does. Visit it on them. God and then go. He talks to God and then he gets his tools. Because the win is to build the wall. The win is not to out-argue people. The win is to build a wall. I think too often we think the win is, I'll out-argue them. No, it's not. It's to live a life that's protected. 
to overcome whatever addiction's getting you, to have your family thrive, to have joy unspeakable. The win is the wall. It's not an out arguing people. To outlive your critics. I don't mean in length of life, I mean in quality of life. Your marriage thrives. Your kids are fun, right? You can't argue with a well-built life or a well-built wall. You just can't argue with it. You can't. So Nehemiah says, I'm not gonna worry about arguing with you guys. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna pick up our tools, and we're gonna get back to work. And that's what you do. God, what's the good work you have for me? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get involved in all this trash talking. I'm gonna get back to what you have me. And it says they had a mind to work. I love that. Why'd they get it halfway done? Because they had a mind to work. So now the wall is halfway done. What's the enemy doing? Verse seven. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They were angry, now they're very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. They turn up the heat. Now it's a 6,000 gallon Tesla fire. Notice their critics are doubling. It was just two guys before, now it's a giant army. Critics always run in packs. They always find friends and they've doubled down. Before it was just words. Now it's, we're gonna come kill you. They're bullies. And they knew that just bullying wasn't gonna work, so they gotta get physical. And if you look at the geography of this, what you see is, it's real interesting. Sambalat is a Persian, he's in the north. Tobiah is an Ammonite, he's in the east. The Arabs were down in the south. And the Ashdodites, they were in the west. Guess where the attack's coming? From all directions, all the time. Just nonstop attack. You ever felt that way? Like everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, it just feels like there's an attack happening to me. That's Nehemiah. So what does he do? Verse nine. And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. God and go for the second time. We prayed and we put up some cameras. We prayed and we put up some stuff that would protect us. I love Nehemiah's balance of the spiritual and the practical. It's one of the big themes of Nehemiah. He balances those, I think, in the right way that we're supposed to. Too often it's one or the other. So David, when he sees his enemy, Goliath, this is what David says. He says, the battle belongs to the Lord. And then what did David do? Did he grab a lazy boy and kick back? Well, the battle belongs to the Lord. I would just want to watch the show. Let's see what happens. No, what did David do? He pulled out his sling and started swinging. If the battle belongs to the Lord, if we got our victory, I'm going to go out there in confidence and I'm going to take out this giant. That's bold. It's God and go. It's I trust God and I'm getting out my tools. I'm gonna get this done. Love it. But now we get the worst attack of all because it comes from inside. Look at verse 10. 
in Judah. This is part of the 12 tribes. It's a contingent of this group that's building the wall. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. This is the worst attack. They've got this group doubting now. They've got this group discouraged now. In verse six, they had a mind to work. In verse 12, they've got a mind full of worry. What changed? It's the voice they listened to. Before they're listening, excuse me, to Nehemiah, his name means God comforts. And he had told them about, hey, I prayed and fasted for four and a half months and the king gave me all this stuff and we're gonna rebuild. And they're like, yeah, let's go because they listened to God's comfort. Now they're listening to the enemy that says, we're gonna come upon you when you don't see us and we're gonna kill you all. And they begin to listen and believe that voice. They begin to hear that. And even worse than Sambalat and Tobiah, there's a group of these Jews from outside of Jerusalem. They lived in the suburbs where they didn't have the same problems where they didn't need a gate. They didn't need a wall. And they're like, come on, give up, come to us. 10 times they come, time after time after time. Stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing. And they began to believe it. Forget what you're doing. An inside attack. You ever had one of those? Where it's your friends, it's your family. When I decided to stop being an engineer and move into ministry, I had a close family member that came and actually traveled here and met with me and said, stop what you're doing, this is ridiculous. Don't give up on a good career. There's no guarantees with that. What are you doing? Stop what you're doing. Quit it. Go back to engineering, right? Happens all the time. They stopped listening to the voice of God's comfort and they started listening to the lies of the enemy. What voice do we listen to? In Genesis 3, you have God dealing with the first two sinners, Adam and Eve. And the very first thing that God says to them is this, who told you that you were naked? Who's put this lie into your head? I created you this way. Who's now told you that you're naked? Who told you that? Judah, who told you that you're going to fail? Judah, who told you that the wall was too hard? Judah, who told you that the rubble's too big? Who told you that you're a failure? Who told you that you can't win? Who told you that you were going to lose? You're going to, who told you this? What voice are you listening to? How many times do we have these voices that whisper to us these lies? Matt, you're gonna fail. Everyone will know you're a fake. You'll never succeed. Rogue Christian Academy can't possibly make it. Are you kidding? What are you trying to do? Your plan's impossible. That's not going to work. How many times, right? I meet people and very often in the conversation I'll have with people, I'll hear an ID statement where they'll say something like this to me. I'm always gonna be an addict. 
Who told you that? I'm fat and ugly and no one will ever love me. Who told you that? I'm just an imposter. I'm just a fake. Who told you that? Who has cursed you? Because that's what it is. We stop believing the comfort of God and we start believing the lies. Does it matter what voice you listen to? Oh man, what we believe we'll be living. Judah allowed this in and now they're living it and now they're afraid. Be careful to the voices you listen to. 10 men discouraged 2 million people into a 40-year death march because of unbelief. The promised land was right there. They could look at it. They're right there. And these 10 men said, we can't do it. We're too small. Instead of going in and taking what God had for them right across the river, instead, they march into the desert for 40 years as each one of them perishes. Does it matter who you listen to? Oh, man. What voice are we listening to? Judah got discouraged because they listened to the wrong voice. So what do we do? Here's what Nehemiah does. In these next verses, next 10 verses, he circles the wagons. That's what he does. And I have this quote. It's one I have at home that I use all the time for myself. And it's this one right here. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the slowest gazelle or it will not survive. Every morning, a lion wakes up and it knows it must run faster than the slowest gazelle or it will starve. It doesn't matter if you are the lion or the gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 1. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Laying aside every sin and weight that besets us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Sometimes you gotta circle the wagons. So how does Nehemiah circle the wagons? Notice what he does. Number one, he gets clans, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans. He got some clans. Hey, get your crew. Get those that are close to you. Get in a group. Get close. Get tight. In Deuteronomy 25, 18, Moses reminds the people, remember when we were walking in the wilderness? The Amalekites would come and they would pick off the stragglers. Those that fell behind, they would keep killing them. It's a warning, stay tight, stay close, stay in community, stay around people that will keep telling you that's the voice of the enemy. Keep giving us the comfort of God. Keep telling us our identity as sons and daughters of King Jesus, who we truly are. You gotta have a clan. Number two, you gotta be equipped. With their swords, their spears, and their bows. You know what this is? This is ancient open carry. It was to demonstrate to the enemies, hey, we're, we got weapons. Well, time out, Matt. Weren't they supposed to trust God? 
Yes, they were trusting God had given them weapons to protect themselves, right? That's what they're trusting God to do, <laughs> right? We get this like silliness, I think, sometimes in our heads where you think, oh, I'm just trusting God. Right, he gave you the means to protect yourself, right? You can pray, but if I'm not practical, it's irresponsible. I can be practical without praying and that's self-confidence. But when I pray and I'm practical, the Bible would call me a wise man. What you see is Nehemiah is a wise man. He prays and he's practical. They're always looking to God. He's always turning to God first. And he's like, hey, we've got weapons. Let's use them. I think in your life, if you have a burned out gate where evil gets in or a broken down wall, and all of us do, what you need to do is you need to pray and then find some practical things that you can do to protect yourself. If you have a burned out gate of alcoholism, you need to pray, God, help me break this thing. And then be practical. Take all your alcohol and pour it into the toilet and flush it just in case. The dog might drink it, all right? <laughs> if you've got a porn problem where it's just mainlining into your life, you pray, God set me free from this. I'm destroying my own soul, Solomon says in Proverbs. I wanna stop destroying my soul, you pray. And you get practical. Get in four, two, three ministries. You take your smartphone and break it. Because if it's bringing porn into your life, it's not a smartphone anymore. It's a dumb phone. Get a flip phone. You pray and you're practical. If greed's your problem, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, then you give your, all your tax records, not the ones you give to your accountant, all your tax records to your friends and say, check this out, make sure I'm right. Or if you're really brave, give it to the IRS. They'll freak out. Like, whoa. That's what you do. You pray and you take a practical step. That is what Nehemiah, it's a theme in this book. It's not either or, it's both and. Both and. And then, this is his brave heart moment. Verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. How brilliant is that? Brave heart. All men die, few men live. Love it. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight for your families. When we forget the Lord, what happens is this. The moment we forget about the Lord, here's what happens. We become afraid. We forget that he's great and awesome. And the moment you're afraid, here's what happens. Fear absorbed becomes anxiety. Anxiety has its own energy to it. People that struggle with anxiety, what happens is they literally can't control themselves anymore because the anxiety controls them. It has its own energy. I think fear absorbed is anxiety. Ah, right? Just overtaken by it. What's the key? Remember the Lord. Nehemiah would say, I remember hearing about Jerusalem, praying for four and a half months and a miracle happens. The king gives me millions of dollars, makes me the governor of this area and gives me 12 years off. Ha <laughs> unbelievable. Israel, remember the 10 plagues. 
How God sets you free from Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, just with his thumb, you're done. Parts the Red Sea, feeds us manna. Remember the Lord. Satan's most powerful weapon is an eraser where he erases what God has done with you in the past and you become afraid and become anxious. Remember your salvation, what you were, how God has grabbed you from that, from the miry clay. Remember his goodness to you. Remember the things that you used to worry about a year ago or five years ago. I don't worry about them anymore. Remember how I used to pray for a house or a spouse or for kids or for a job or for purpose or for meaning and God has answered you. You remember the Lord. You remember him. That's why we started Nehemiah with handing out journals. Journals are the way you and I battle Satan's eraser. Now I go back, I remember, oh God, you've been so good to me. And then you fight for your families. Men, ministry begins at your home. I talked to men who's like, I don't have purpose. I don't, I don't have meaning. I don't know what to do. I work 40 hours. I'm not sure why I do it. Here's why you do it. At 5.30, when you show up at home, that's what you're doing. You're fighting for your families. The reason why you fight to get here on Sunday mornings is you're saying, I'm fighting for my family. That's what we do. Ministry begins at home. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater joy than to know your kids are walking in the truth. That's what scripture says. The fight begins at home. Fight for your family. Fight for them. I love it. And then here's what he does. Verse 15. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. God, he frustrated their plan, and go, let's get our tools and get back to work. This is a theme, God and go. And then I love verse 16 through 20, look at this. From that day on, Half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears and the shields and the bows and the coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah. Who was the most discouraged doubting group? Remember back in verse 10? It was Judah. Where did the leaders go? Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Strengthen the weak. Judah had the doubt. Judah had started listening to the voice of the enemy. We're too frail, we're too weak, we can't do it. The rubble's too high, we'll always be this way, we'll never succeed. They were the weak ones. So where did all the leaders go? They stood right behind the whole house of Judah. The leaders went where the weak people were, where the broken doubters were. The leaders rallied to them. They said, hey, we got you, man. We're watching for you. We're behind you. We'll strengthen you. We'll hold you up. Don't worry, right? Protected, encouraged, strengthened the weakest members. Is that what church does? 
Does church in your head, when you think about it, does church rally to the broken and to the weak? Is that what church does? Let me give you a test on it. If you decided, hey, I'm gonna buy a motorcycle. So you get a motorcycle and you're riding one sunny, beautiful day and you do something stupid because if you buy a motorcycle as a man, you will do something stupid. It's inevitable, right? Trust me, I know. So you do something stupid, you get in a wreck and you break your leg. Where do you go? The hospital. Why? Because the hospital is the place for people with broken legs. That's where you go. Even though you did something stupid, even though it was your fault, you still go there and they'll help you. They'll put you back together. All right? So let's say you do something stupid. You drink too much, you get in your car, you drive, you get a Dewey. If you're saying, what's a Dewey? I say, thank you, you're a great person. <laughs> you're driving while under the influence. Do you come to church on the next Sunday? Or are you like, oh no, churches for nice, good, clean people. I don't belong there now. They'll know I'm broken. They'll know I'm wounded. They'll know I'm weak. Do you go to church? Because for a lot of people, church isn't the place for broken and weak and wounded people. It's the place for pretty people. It's for the place for people that have it all together. But listen to the words of Jesus. He's eaten a meal once. It's Mark chapter two. And he's eaten with all the wrong kinds of people prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors and publicans and just the worst, rowdiest crowd ever. And there's these religious uppity types that are watching this and they're like, we can't believe Jesus is eating with those people. And Jesus hears it. So Jesus turns to them and says, hey, doctors don't come for the well, they come for the sick. I did not come for the righteous, I came for sinners. So what Jesus says right there is this, in my kingdom, I am going to be the king of the broken. I'm gonna be the king of the failures. I'm gonna be the king of the do-we-getters, the publicans, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunkards, the addicts. That's who I'm gonna be the king of. That's going to be my kingdom. In the old way, it was make sacrifices and fix yourself up so that you look good enough and maybe, just maybe, we'll let you in the temple. But in my kingdom, I'm gonna choose you when you're broken and corrupt and messed up and I'm gonna bring you into the church. So expect there to be broken, messed up stuff in church. That's the way the kingdom's supposed to work. I'm glad Edgewater has issues because it means we're probably on the right track. We're supposed to, right? We're to rally to the weak, not to exclude them and be like, hey, get yourself fixed up first. No way. We rally behind them, just like these guys did right here. Love it. We strengthen the weak. And then lastly, he ends, you gotta be vigilant. So he labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each 
kept his weapon at his right hand. Be vigilant. They start to guard. Like they don't change their clothes. They've been working out in the sun, moving hot stones all day long. It is brutal, sweaty, hard work. And when they get home at night, they don't take off their clothes and put on their PJs. Like they stink. They were glad for the perfumer then. Bring him on over, man. I need that dude right now. Why? Because they knew we have to be ready for the fight. It's gonna come when we least expect it. We can't get in our PJs. Who knows when it's coming? We have to be vigilant. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your enemy roars, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Be vigilant. We have a real enemy. And it's not China. It's not Russia. It's not a Democrat. It's not a Republican. It's not the government. It's not the ACLU. We have a real enemy. And he's a prowling lion seeking who he may devour. He is ceaseless and he is sleepless. And he's always trying to find us off guard. So be vigilant. Can't put your PJs on. Be vigilant. And he never comes at us straight away. Do you know that? He doesn't come at us in the, in the bright of day, right? It's never gonna happen like this. I get a call from my wife. Hey, honey, on the way home, can you pick up a printer cartridge from home or for the computer at home at Staples? Sure. So I go to Staples. I come out and some guy approaches me right before I get to my car. And he's in a trench coat. He's like, hey. I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, do you want some black tar heroin? And he opens his coat and there's all, all these needles. What am I gonna do in that moment? Am I, am I gonna be like, pro-con this? Hold on a second. Cons, probably gonna lose my job, lose my marriage, lose my house, lose all my money, might die because I might have fentanyl in it. But pros, hmm, it'd be a very interesting hour and a half. No, what am I gonna say? Bro, you're crazy. I don't need that. You need Jesus, right? Because the enemy doesn't attack like that. How's an enemy attack? Here's the best example I have. Elijah was like four years old and we were on YouTube and we were looking at motorcycle races. So you know how YouTube will like recommend the next video? So we were, we'd watch this motorcycle racing video and then it recommended motorcycle jumps. So we clicked on that because I just can't believe what these guys do when they jump their motorcycles now. Like they climb off the motorcycle, they get on the front tire, they have a cup of tea and then they get back on a landing. You're just like, oh, that's amazing. How do you do that? Right? So then it was motorcycle wrecks. And like, yeah, that's even better, right? So they didn't get the cup of tea in time and they smashed themselves, which is really fun. And then the next one was this, motorcycles being ridden by girls in bikinis. And I shut it off. What is that? That's the roar of the enemy. That's what he does, right? Just little, little step by step by step to try to get you into compromise. People say, Matt, Matt, I fell into adultery. Time out. What? What, you woke up one morning and you looked over and you're like, hey, you're not my wife, what happened? That's not true. It was compromise after compromise after compromise. That's the way the enemy works. 
It's step by step with his spirit speaking and wooing and warning us step after step after step. We have a real enemy. You know what he says all the time to us? Take a break. Well, he doesn't. You got it, man. You're good now. Relax. Right? He says it to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. At the time when the kings went out to war, the Bible says, David stayed at home. What's the problem with that? He's a king and he's supposed to be at war. He stopped being vigilant and he's walking on the top of his house and he looks over at a rooftop and there's a woman over there taking a bath named Bathsheba, right? Compromise after compromise, adultery, murder. You think David was expecting to be a murderer when he didn't go to war that year? But he became one. Peter, Matthew chapter 26. Peter, come with me. Watch and pray for one hour. What does Peter do? Oh, man, I'm tired. I need a break. And he denies Jesus three times. See, the enemy is always saying to us, take a break. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to read your Bible. You need to study. You got it. You don't have to be vigilant. You don't have to go to sleep in your clothes. You can put your PJs on and kick back. But he doesn't because he's ceaseless and sleepless. And so Nehemiah is telling us, listen, listen, be sober, be vigilant because you have a real enemy who is prowling around seeking anyone he can devour, anyone to make a little compromise to get us messed up. And so Nehemiah's words, remember the Lord and fight for your family, come back to me. Hebrews 12, run this race with endurance, laying aside every sin and weight that besets you, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith.